0: Hi, welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Coming up, new hotel quarantine measures for people arriving in Canada from international destinations. And Canadians do not have a lot of sympathy for those who are flying during a pandemic. And Canadian MPs will vote today on whether to declare China's treatment of the Uyghurs genocide, despite the Prime Minister saying no. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML Take it away, honey Hi, I'm Eileen, Scott's wife Kurt was so excited about the snow He bolted out the door without doing his intro Good thing I didn't
1: forget about his lunch It's the Scott Thompson Home Show Here's Scott Thompson
0: (laughs) Oh, And she cannot get out of here fast enough Thank you, honey that was a great job. Come on in. You want to talk some more? Come on. Come on. Come on back. Come on. Come on. <laughs> she has to go do her. What did you say? I have to go do her, my real job. <laughs> nice. Oh man. All right. Good afternoon. It is twelve eleven. It is nine hundred. Chml. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, we just uh, totally forgot to do uh, Kurt's intro uh this morning and uh as you can tell my wife is uh filled in and absolutely loves doing it every time she is called on and asked. Bye <laughs> so, Eileen and yeah forget it will long gone Will long gone. <laughs> Other end of the house. Uh where are we? Oh yeah twelve eleven. Where are we? We are at week number fifty. Week number fifty of the Scott Thompson home show. Uh yeah we're close to an anniversary here uh which would have been march break i guess. Uh feel free to jump into the conversation we would love to hear from you lots of ways to do that. Feel free to send us an opia uh, via the website scott thompson at 900chml.com. All right, another uh, giant humongous show coming up uh uh today the uh the new travel restrictions start in uh Canada those flying in. I thought they were starting like a month ago but they're actually in place uh, everywhere i guess as of today. Here's a report from Sandy Salerno on this.
1: Anyone flying into Canada will be forced to stay in a government-approved hotel for three days while they wait for the results of a COVID-19 test. This is not a freebie. Travellers will have to foot the bill for not only the stay, but all else involved like food, transportation, and security, which is expected to cost less than the $2,000 Ottawa originally said it would. Health Canada says those who have their own cars parked at the airport can drive themselves to the hotel. Others will have to take a designated shuttle bus, taxi, or limo. Anyone with a positive test will be required to finish out their quarantine at a designated government facility, and those with a negative test will be able to head back home to complete their quarantine time sandy salerno global news
0: all right let's bring in thomas tencake professor of the school of occupational and public health at ryerson university thomas thank you for the time i hope you're doing well
2: uh yes thanks hi right, scott thank you very much
0: so many thought, I think, that this was uh, already in place. This was announced a long time ago. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I think many thought that this was already sort of going on. Where are we now with this? Is, all four airports, uh, everyone off international flights now required to do this as of today?
2: Uh, yeah, that's my understanding. Anyone flying into Canada is, uh, you know, required to uh, go through this process.
0: And uh, uh, what about what would have happened in the last couple of weeks? Because again, this was announced, uh, I would say, a, like a month ago. I remember people trying to leave and getting under the wire to get out, and even extending their stay down there, thinking that uh, that there was this situation in place. Are you surprised it's taken this long to get this into into play?
2: Yeah, it, it is interesting that it's uh, taken this length of time to sort of put in, put into put into action you know my my sense is that you know something like this is sort of easier said than done and the all the processes that they need needed to put in place in regards to the the, the, the hotels and and all the other you know sort of mechanisms around that like they, they have a uh, arrive can app or and or website that you have to uh you know set up an account with that you have to you know put in your quarantine plans and uh, and your test results and all that sort of thing. So, so there's a whole sort of mechanism around that, not just, you know, bringing, bringing it in. And so, so I suppose that's my sense is what, what's taken that, that time. However, you know, as you said, you know, it, it's meant that, uh, you know, any delays in this means that people, you know, coming into the country up until now, uh, you know, have this potential for, for uh, you know, bringing bringing in the, you know, if, if they're infected to, uh, you know, uh, spread the virus, uh, you know, within their, you know, local community.
0: Yeah, you have to wonder how many have already come in under the wire in the last month or so before uh, any of this was uh, was really in place. Do you, are you confident we have the facilities, uh, whether it's staff or hotels or, um, you know, the, the protocol in place to, to do this, to pull this off? Hmm
2: well it you know definitely you know the it seems like the government has uh sort of learned lessons from other countries that have uh, been doing this process and you know particularly say australia where they they've had this in place for for a long time and uh they've actually had quite a quite a number of uh, situations there where they've had problems at actually 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 at the quarantine hotels so uh so i think you know uh Take, taking a little bit of time to get it right and to make sure that the procedures and policies are in place, particularly at the hotel itself in regard to you know the uh, uh, the way you know the policy around where, you know and procedures around people staying in their rooms and the whole aspect of room service and 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 you know just that as- all the aspects of in essence locking people down once they're in a quarantine, but also that also includes particularly around security. Uh, measures uh, are, are all really valuable lessons from, from other countries that have, have been uh, doing this for, for quite some time.
0: Uh, we've seen um, a difference in price. Uh, initially, when this first came out, the Prime Minister was saying this could cost you up to $2,000 or maybe even in more. We're now seeing lower rates than that. Anything you can tell us or share with the price? Or I guess is that just a ballpark yeah. figure?
2: Well, yeah, I think what's what is you know it is interesting that uh, you know there, there's different figures in regard to the price. So I I know that say when when they first came out saying it would be two thousand dollars for the three nights. So personally, I was I was a bit surprised at that because say in Australia, the 14 day stay in a hotel was quoted at uh, around just over two thousand dollars. Uh, so so, I think you know my sense was that you know two thousand dollars for three nights was was quite an exaggeration, but uh you know they i think they're talking you know something in the four hundred odd dollars a night per for two two people so but you 're still talking you know fifteen you know fifteen hundred or you know getting edging onto the two thousand mark for for just a three nights so so it is uh, it is definitely something people have to have to uh, you know, think about it and and plan for.
0: What about uh, those that don't comply?
2: Yeah, well, uh, as in comply in regard to who don't uh,
0: yeah i mean them. you know you were you said something uh, uh the reporter was saying uh sandy salerno was saying in her report that uh those that for example had cars that you know they parked at the at the airport they could drive those to the hotel what's to stop them from you know just turning left and starting instead of right and uh and heading home um i mean obviously yeah. they will be tracked uh but but what about those that don't comply
2: yeah, well, yeah, what I, you know, what I understand is that, uh, you know, using this, uh, can, can, uh, or Rise Canada app, uh, it, it's, uh, it's where you have to sort of, uh, log in and, and it's basically tracks where you are and, you know, have to log in every day and, and basically, uh, you know, if, if you don't actually follow all the, follow the rules, then, then it, it, uh, there's, uh, you know, it's a breach of a you know quarantine act and, and uh people can can be uh you know prosecuted for that. So so I think you know, people you know, even though the the aspect of keeping track of everyone is, is a pretty big deal, I think people have to take it seriously that there are there are uh you know penalties if, if you don't comply
0: uh what about our civil rights and you know i obviously you know the rubber's hitting the road today and people are realizing this is coming into effect uh we've seen some reports in the media and some travelers are pretty upset about it uh that being said i'm not sure canadians have a lot of sympathy for them but what about this what kind of fine line are we walking with civil rights here
2: yeah yeah definitely it, it is a it is a question and uh you know from a public health perspective one of the one of the sort of the balancing acts is, is always you know what sort of level of restriction do you place on people versus what's the you know the broader benefit for the community and and under that sort of principle basically the the more restrictions and the more you more you restrict people's uh, sort of abilities to go about their daily daily you know work and and life you has to the, has to be because of the, you know, a much more substantial benefit for the community. So, so basically, you know, what, in essence, what they're really saying is that these, you know, very severe restrictions are are on balance versus the uh, the uh, what could happen if, if the the quarantine isn't in place. In and particularly, you know, with uh, you know, people are hearing a lot. A lot more about the, the variant strains that are that are starting to become more dominant, and and definitely, you know, that that's really what what this is about. Particularly, is because, you know, those those uh, if if those uh, variants take hold within the community, that they are you know much more easily transmitted, and you know the modelling that I that I've read about says you know by the end of March, if we don't if if the the measures aren't in place. We could be looking at something like twenty thousand cases a day. What, what is you know, you know, six times what we had in January. So, so it, it's really very worrying that you know the potential if if the the, the restrictions aren't in place.
0: Uh, any idea of how many people we could see in hotels by say next week?
2: Ah. Uh, I- I don't I don't know what what that number is, but but you know, and I think that's been that's been the uh, the issue. Say in other countries, is that what they've done is they've actually restricted the number of people allowed to come into the country, and so by doing that, then they've uh, been able to manage manage the sort of quarantine right. hotels. So so I think you know that that's definitely you know whether or not that uh, you know. I would think that that's also going to be uh something else that's going to be in the works is is in essence uh you know a cap on the number of people co- allowed to come in so that you can manage the uh manage the uh you know capacity at, at the hotels
0: Um, you know, at the end of the day, this is designed to keep people home and and to make it impossible or, or darn near impossible for for them to travel internationally. And as you mentioned, the reasons for this are those variants. Cases are coming down, but uh, medical officials are still concerned about the rising amount of uh, new cases and new new variants and and such um do you think this will work or is it it's a case of well there's not really any options and if you want to fly you've really got to jump through some hoops to make it happen
2: yeah yeah definitely you know you know the government has sort of said to people for for a long time you know please don't don't fly anywhere unless you really have to uh, and and this is just another step in saying well you know if you're going to fly we're going to you know you have to jump through these hoops and i think uh you know in other countries that have done done this you know they they have been able to really uh you know reduce the uh you know community spread uh and to to keep you know people quarantined has has, has done that you know my my sort of worry personally is 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 the differences between how they're dealing with uh People who are flying in versus who who drive in, and hmm. and it means that you know. And what I've heard is that some people who are overseas are going to fly in, maybe fly into Buffalo, and then drive from Buffalo across, and and right. you know that then is you know is trying to bypass this whole process, and and I think uh, you know that that's that's worrying if you're going to if you're going to uh, sort of sort of people are going to try and bypass the process uh, that really undermines what what it's all about.
0: Thomas Kate has been with us, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. Quarantine uh, starts at hotels uh, in four major airports where international flights are coming into as of today. And those travelers will have to quarantine in one of those hotels until uh, their positive test comes back. Thomas, thanks for the time and insight as always. Be well.
2: Yeah, thanks very much, Scott. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: All right. uh, A recent poll poll from Ipsos Public Affairs. Uh, Not a lot of people have sympathy for those traveling or snowbirds, for that matter. Uh, And most Canadians are supporting uh, the travel restrictions that are in place. To talk more about all of this, Daryl Brooker is with us, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs and on the line now. Daryl, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well, Scott. I hope you are, too. Uh, are there any surprises here with what you're seeing? Um, you know, again, I think a lot of people may have thought that these were already in place, but I guess it, it's taken a while to finalize all of this. Uh, are you surprised at Canadians' reactions, considering so many of us go south and are considered snowbirds?
3: No, given that we've been tracking this for as long as we have since, you know, basically this this whole crisis started, we know that Canadians are pretty tough on anything that has to do with... Uh, um, closing the borders I mean they're not they're uh, now of the understanding that uh, that this was something that came in from other places and has found its way into the general population but that that controlling those borders are important uh, as an important element of, of of protecting Canadians so they're pretty tough about it
0: and however they are sympathetic and some do believe there are exceptions to to the rule
3: yeah you know it's it's one of those things where People can look at things in general and have a very strong view, but when you get into the specifics of some circumstances, say, for example, somebody having to travel out of the country for school or something like that, there's a bit more sympathy, but still the majority of the population believes that, you know, there's, that there should be no accommodations for anybody who fit into those categories, and including those categories are snowbirds. The thing that's interesting to me is the people who are hardest on snowbirds are older Canadians
0: are other does that mean there's snowbirds staying at home or snowbirds that are canadians that aren't snowbirds perhaps
3: uh well i think it's uh, there, there might be a little bit of envy <laughs> related
0: really, yeah. to people snowbird who
3: always, envy a you know, a bit of snowbird envy but also maybe people who fit into that category who say uh, uh you know i didn't do it so i don't expect anybody else is going to do it this year but uh when it comes to controlling the borders uh on that one, uh, it's one of the things where we get the strongest level of, of alignment in Canada in terms of public opinion. You know, 83% of the population agreeing on anything, even the color of the sky today, is a very rare thing indeed.
0: That is interesting. Now, um, obviously, we know there's different travel restrictions. Uh, Florida, the travel restrictions uh, that the airlines, uh, the the government put in place on the airlines, it doesn't affect Florida, but it does uh, the Caribbean, Mexico, those sorts of places. Uh, Do Canadians have more sympathy or any difference of, of, of thought on... Uh, those that are just traveling for a sun uh, destination vacation for a week or two, as opposed to those who have property down there and, and may, are in Florida, and may, you know, be down there for for five months, four months of the year. If,
3: if the travel activity could potentially expose Canadians to the virus, uh, then they don't really have any sympathy. I right. mean, there's always going to be specific examples of, you know, uh, exceptions that should be made. But in general overwhelmingly Canadians believe that um, uh, that we should be controlling those border, our borders very strongly and not making exceptions.
0: 83% agreed they support the new travel rules, including the pre-testing, the testing on arrival, and the quarantine. 83%, does that surprise you? That's high. Uh,
3: you know, honestly, given that we've been tracking this for as long as we have, No, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, It's it's the same thing when we report uh, to uh, when we go and we pull people on things like, for example, uh, staying at home or doing any of the things that we've been asked to do in order to uh, restrict the virus in terms of wearing masks and all those other things. There's a there's a really vocal minority of, of the population that's opposed to this, but by and large, the Canadian public, the Ontario public, is pretty supportive of restrictions that will. Uh, create a situation in which uh, the virus has less of an opportunity to spread. So, no, I wasn't surprised really at all.
0: What about how has that that attitude changed over time? Is it much different now than it was six months ago, or even a year from a year ago?
3: No, that's one thing that really hasn't changed. Uh, the 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 one part of this that has changed is the expectation of when this is all going to stop, when we'll be able to get back to normal. And that date keeps getting pushed further and further off in the minds of Canadians, which really is an indication of how of their expectations, what they're preparing for. The, the issue that's really on their minds right now, those vaccines, and I know you were mentioning that previously, uh, that's the one where the, you can really start to see the anxiety and disappointment really beginning to build.
0: Uh, just getting back to travel for a second. So are you alluding to the fact that really Canadians aren't really anxious to travel in the next year or so?
3: So we asked people uh, uh, are you contemplating taking a trip out of the country this year? Three percent said they were. <laughs> wow,
0: Wow. Yeah, so it's not, not very large
3: and when you uh, and when you start asking people uh, when they might consider traveling outside of the country sixty four the total number sixty four which would be next year or later. In fact, 17% of the people we interviewed said that they would not contemplate leaving the country at all. But, you know, there's not everybody leaves the country or is interested in leaving the country and traveling. So that's probably a bit of an inflated number. But, the, uh, uh, but there's a real reluctance to get on airplanes and to fly places.
0: Does our attitude differ from other countries, uh, other societies around the world? Are we more cautious? Can we compare?
3: Yes, we can. And, and in fact, uh, we are on the more cautious end of the scale. I mean, there are places that are going through different sets of circumstances, like a place like Australia right now. Or, you know, if you're living in, um, uh, you're, you're living in different parts of Europe, there's, uh, they've got the virus more or less under control in certain places or where vaccine rates are quite high. Uh, they, they might have a bit of a different attitude, but in Canada right now, we're very, very reluctant, uh, to reengage with society the way that we used to.
0: And how much of this do you think is, as you mentioned, due to lack of vaccines? Seeing others around the world uh, becoming vaccinated before us, uh, obviously, that's leaving us anxious as well.
3: Well, the word uh, they used, and we used in a poll uh, that came out on the weekend, was seventy-one percent of Canadians feeling angry about yeah. the fact that we're, we're that we're trailing other uh, countries. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that uh, at the moment that they're not hoping that the government's going to be able to uh, uh, get vaccinated, and canes vaccinated in a reasonable period of time. But the standard's not being set at press conferences in Ottawa. The standard's being set based on what's happening in other countries, and what they're seeing is raising questions.
0: Who are they angry at? Angry at who? Um, I'll leave it at that.
3: Governments, particularly the federal government. The federal government's been the one making the announcements about vaccines, has very clearly uh, stated that it... Uh, Um, uh, is is in control of the supply and people are becoming very aware of the fact that this isn't an issue of uh, provinces not getting vaccines out to people, it's about vaccines getting into the country and that rests squarely with the federal government.
0: Uh, that being said, uh, I, I guess, um, and, we, and we talked about this last week, the polling numbers are, are relatively close when it comes to the conservatives and liberals as far as, you know, calling an election. Uh, but the prime minister's personal numbers still remain high. How do you explain that?
3: Well, I think that there's a certain amount of hope that's uh, that's baked into those numbers. So not people saying that they're doing a great job, but that they hope that they're going to be able to deliver what they're promising. So that's uh, an absolute great number to be tracking over the space of the next couple of months. And particularly, Scott, as we get into March, which marks the year.
0: Yeah, you know, we will have a year anniversary coming up in in just a couple of weeks uh, as far as, you know, uh, I I guess if you're judging by March break of last year when this sort of uh, the kids were told to stay home and just keep going. Um, As you look at these numbers, what does that tell you about an election?
3: Uh, Looking at everything that I'm seeing right now, uh, in our polling, the liberals have a three-point lead. The only reason that they would want to have an election, call a federal election, is if they had a secure majority. It's not there. Um, and everybody's watching the issue of vaccines like a hawk. So if they're able to make a lot of progress on va- vaccines, particularly surprising progress on vaccines over the next couple of months, there's a possibility of an election. But at this stage of the game, it doesn't, it, that doesn't seem to be happening. So I think that uh, the possibilities are quite narrow.
0: Um, Are are Canadians aware that we're on the verge of an election? We certainly saw a gun control uh, policy be announced uh, last week. Uh, The longer this drags on, does it get difficult, uh, easier for the Prime Minister? And I guess that all hinges on the arrival of vaccines on our doorstep.
3: Right. I mean, so you can make announcements about gun control, but when we go out and we ask people what are the most important issues facing the country today, gun control doesn't come up in the top 10. So I mean they can make those kinds of announcements but people are watching what's going on with the pandemic, like hawks and other types of policy issues that are being announced or uh, at the at, at at the very at the very best on the periphery. Uh,
0: you know, you were talking about if if this starts to open up and you know, he's always said the firm deadline of the prime minister set the firm deadline of of the end of September by that time anybody who wants to be vaccinated uh, will be vaccinated. We're certainly hearing the UK and the US, uh, talking about completing their vaccination, uh, 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 uh procedure by you know, even July, the summer and such. But you have to think as those countries do uh, get towards vaccinating the majority of their populations, you'll start to see see more of this stuff, more of this vaccination uh, free up, will we not? I mean, so, and I guess I'm hoping, I'm looking into a crystal ball here, but you have to think that by the summer, things are going to start to flow.
3: On behalf of the country, one would hope so. Uh, but the real question is, you know, the government, the federal government, said, you know, three million by the end of uh, by the end of uh, March, and uh, everybody who wants one by the end of September. Those were the standards that they decided on their own. Nobody else decided that those were the standards. They decided on their own that that's what they were going to tell Canadians about what was going to be acceptable. Um, and as they watch what's happening in other countries, as you mentioned a second ago, that's really becoming the standard. And I don't think even when we're talking about March people understand that we're only talking about 3 million people where there's 38 million Canadians.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And,
3: and so was anybody, is anybody listening right now? Did you think that your vaccine, what the prime minister was promising you would be that you would be vaccinated in September? Or did you think that those were just going to be the last few stragglers that maybe we had to convince to get vaccinated? Not everybody. Yeah. So this, this is going to be a very difficult period of time over the next while as people wake up to the idea that we're no longer, uh, you know, just vaccinating people who are essential or who are particularly vulnerable. But the general population is going to start asking, when's my turn? And they're going to be told, well, maybe September, maybe. In fact, there was a, uh, more information today that might even be slipping into December. Is that what people are thinking right now?
0: Because Well, even, the- even General Hillier said that uh, with all the doses coming in by the end of March, that'll get them started on the 80-year-olds. So that's right. still, you know, I mean, there's people a lot younger than that being injected in other parts of the world. Uh, and I may have asked you this before, Daryl, and, and I'm, I'm asking this of a lot of people. Um, so say everything does arrive by September in mass quantities, the way the prime minister has has promised. Uh, is that en- enough to make everyone forget what happened during January, February, March, April, May, however long this lasts, this drought?
3: It may very well be um uh expectations on all of this are actually quite low right now only 43% of Canadians actually think that the government's going to be able to deliver what they said they uh, they're able to deliver so if they're able to exceed what are fairly low expectations at the moment that might work very well for them but it all comes down to this question i mean what i think about it uh you know is you know interesting i guess but the public opinion data is really really clear uh and that is that uh, the public is increasingly concerned about vaccines and are really focused on particularly the federal government's ability to deliver. And they're going to live or die based on this, particularly if they try to call an election or engineer an election in the short
0: term. So really, this is a race between the variants and the vaccine arriving. And at this point, it's really just a waiting game, isn't it, Daryl?
3: It it really is. And and waiting game along with public expectations. So if the public is feeling like uh, governments aren't doing everything that they need to, or haven't performed well in terms of getting uh, access to the types of vaccines uh, that we need in order to, to, to keep our population safe, and that we're waiting an unnecessarily long period of time, that's when the political consequences will become dire.
0: Uh, getting back to the travel restrictions that clicked in today, uh, what do you think response is going to be like uh, for that in the next two weeks once this starts to sink in?
3: Well, there's going to be the stories that are going to come out about people who travel, you know, the exceptions, people who are, you know, through no fault of their own are going to be caught up in a a certain circumstance. And I think there's going to be some public uh, sympathy for that. But overall, uh, there's very little sympathy for the idea of opening the borders right now. People are very, very strict about it. Um, And they, given that hardly anybody's actually interested in traveling, like I said, only 3%, uh, they don't think it's a particularly big cost to pay. In order to shut down the, uh, the borders, so if there's something that's easy for them to support, it's this.
0: Daryl Bricker has been with us, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Uh, new travel restrictions going into effect as of today. Those uh, landing from international flights have to quarantine until their test uh, quarantine in a hotel until their test uh, results are known. Daryl, thanks for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here's today's daily commentary. What is more important to Canadians getting vaccinated against COVID-19 or having an election and giving Justin Trudeau his much wanted majority government? You may remember the PM tried between the pandemic's first and second wave by calling a throne speech for a giant reset. That was a little premature. The opposition didn't bite, correctly gauging the severity and concern of a second wave. Last week, a Leger poll revealed over 70% of Canadians are angry with the federal liberals over their handling of the COVID-19 vaccination rollout as the country hovers below 40th in the world for vaccination of its citizens. Pundits say that will pretty much wipe out Trudeau's hopes of his much-wanted spring election, hoping to cash in on his pandemic love before an unvaccinated cold shoulder lowers its sleeve on the PM for overselling the size of his vaccine portfolio, rather than getting the life-saving vaccine here in a timely fashion so people stop dying and Canadians can move on with the rest of the world. Now that a spring election looks unlikely, the focus will move to the fall, with the Prime Minister hoping the joy Canadians finally feel over getting vaccinated will be enough to make you forget the hell we're going through now while waiting in line. I'm Scott Thompson. All right, we were talking about this uh, last week and it has continued to grow and uh, it looks like it is going to come to a head today in the House of Commons. Uh, China's envoy to Canada is telling Canadian parliamentarians to butt out of their country's internal affairs through their pending vote on declaring genocide against ethnic uh, ethnic Muslim Uyghurs in China. Uh, here's what Conservative MP Michael Chung had to say about this and what will happen in the House of Commons today. The evidence has come in the form of high-definition, high-resolution satellite imagery uh, that has been tracked over time that documents clearly the building of hundreds of detention centers. If Parliament adopts the motion tonight, we call on the government
2: to uphold democratic norms and respect the will of Parliament and officially
4: recognize the Uyghur genocide.
0: A Chinese, the Chinese ambassador to Canada, uh, Canada reiterated his government's view that there is no mistreatment of the Uyghurs labeling accusations from the United Nations and others that millions of people in detention camps are being subject to forced labor and sterilization as unfounded China bashing. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Charles Burton is with a senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canadians uh, Canada's Interests Abroad at McDonald laurie Institute and is with us now. Charles, hope you're doing well. Thanks for the time. Good to speak with you, Scott. Are you surprised this is getting the attention that it is now? It it started uh, quite mildly and then is slowly starting to pick up steam. It appears we're talking about it more.
4: Well, I, I think that the fact that um, Secretary of State Pompeo has declared it a genocide, and and his successor under the new President Biden, Secretary of State Blinken, has agreed that it's genocide, is really putting the pressure on Canada to. Start to act in response to, as you say, the uh, the Human Rights Subcommittee of the Commons, um, who also determined that it was genocide. So the question is, why don't we put on those Magnitsky sanctions and make the Chinese officials who are responsible for genocide accountable for that, and not allow them to freely come to our country and live in comfort in mansions in Vancouver and wh- what have you, you know, and there, and that we should be pressuring. The Chinese more and more to allow for inspection of these facilities, if, as the ambassador says, there's no genocide going on there, then why don't they welcome the u n to send in an investigation team to confirm that that's the case, but you know we know from satellite imagery and from the evidence of people who've managed to escape the camps that um there it is a genocide thing it's uh they're restricting the fertility of women, they are taking children away from their parents and not allowing them to learn their language and religion. It it meets the criteria of genocide, so any hesitation on the part of our government uh, to declare otherwise is, is troubling, to say the least.
0: The Prime Minister says he needs more proof. Why would this not be enough proof, Charles?
4: Well, I think that that is really the issue. You know, the suggestion that somehow or other... He's got to wait until the U.N. sends in a team. Uh, It's not really very practical. The Chinese are not going to allow any inspection of those facilities. Um, There's no question about it. So the ambassador's denial of genocide is ringing pretty hollow there. I think that, um, you know, the prime minister has suggested that Canada will only act in substantive measures against the government of China for the genocide if we're able to do it in concert with like-minded powers to some sort of coalition to to try and get China into compliance with international norms of diplomacy and trade. But you know we'll see what happens with the vote. We're not sure if it's a whipped vote and the liberal MPs will be required to vote against it, or if the uh, government will uh, allow the liberals a free vote, in which case I imagine most of the MPs will will support the resolution of this genocide. And then the question really is, once the determination is made, will the government actually do anything to, to recognize that Canada has a responsibility to stand up for people who are being subject to genocide and leaving aside the genocide, you know, the conditions inside the camps, particularly the pervasive reports of rape and torture, are uh, extremely disturbing. And it's troubling for me to just see our government standing idly by while this is going on
0: um obviously uh the prime minister won't use the term genocide it, it appears everybody in the opposition and certainly anybody expert i've ever talked to uh says that it is uh, so say a vote happens and it looks like the vote will go through it will be uh it, w- it will win enough votes what what does that say when the prime minister says one thing and yet parliament votes another way. What's the message there? What does that accomplish?
4: Well, I think it does uh, suggest a degree of disdain for our democratic process. You know, when the um, the Foreign Affairs Committee, Human Rights Subcommittee determined it was genocide, the liberal members on that committee um, voted to support that, that determination as well, and the government simply blew them off. You know, hasn't uh, done anything and keeps insisting, I think as the Prime Minister says, to make sure we have our the I's and the T's, uh, the I's dotted and the T's crossed, although there aren't any T's in the word genocide that I know about. Mm-hmm. In any event, you know, this is um, clearly it's 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 something that the government is doing to try and uh, and appease the business community who are concerned about economic retaliation. But I think that, uh, you know, considering our level of trade with China is, is really quite low, only about 4% of our exports go there. That if China wants to retaliate, then we just have to to take it and seek markets for our agricultural commodities and minerals elsewhere. But, um, you know, I'm very troubled by the whole thing because it's pretty clear what's happening. And I don't think history will judge uh, Prime Minister Trudeau well if he continues to obfuscate on, on this matter.
0: Um, This reminds me of the Huawei issue, uh, Charles, in the sense that, you know, uh, all the allies, the five eyes are saying don't go with Huawei as the backbone for your 5G network. It's, It's it's you know, as far as a security standpoint, it's a threat. Uh, now the manufacturers, I mean, they're tired of waiting for the government to make a call on that. So they've kind of moved on with their own, uh, not using Huawei. So, you know, it's not like he's making the decision. It's like, look, this is the way the Canadians have under have decided. It's got nothing to do with me. It sounds like he's trying to do the same thing here in the sense that I'm not calling it Genesis, but all those people are. So it is what it is. Can he continue to just ride the fence like this on every issue?
4: Well, I do wonder particularly with an election coming up if this would cause people to feel that they need to make a different political choice. And uh, you know, certainly the the issue is is really about our government doing something mm-hmm. to demonstrate to the Chinese authorities that this genocidal policies that they are implementing are completely unacceptable to Canada and the argument is always made that oh you know if we do anything on china if we if we turn down Huawei 5G or if we uh crack down on chinese agents of the chinese state harassing and menacing canadians in canada particularly those of chinese origin or if we um you know if we start to provide safe harbor to people in hong kong who are going to be subject to possible transmission to china for imprisonment because of the new national security law and now, um, with regard to the uh, genocide in Xinjiang, if we do anything, it will mean that the Chinese won't send back in favor. But, you know, Kovacan's favor has now been there for 800 days. Uh, I've been urging for most of those 800 days myself that Canada will only get a good response out of China if we show some backbone and retaliate against, um, you know, for example, their... Their economic coercion against us by by banning our our canola seeds and stopping some meat from going in, and uh, the government just doesn't seem to get this message. So I really wonder why it is like what has the Chi- what have the Chinese got on our government that causes us to comply with what the Chinese ambassador wants, as opposed to acting in the interests of Canada? This it's a mystery to me, and I really I really wish I could get the answer to that one
0: um obviously today and and with this uh what's going on in the house of commons they've even brought in witnesses uh and we're starting to see some of that in the news media uh surface uh, uh people talking about uh confirming exactly what you've been discussing and not only that but people being uh harassed here uh, by Chinese authorities that are here for some reason and, and, and putting pressure on them who have family members uh, back there that perhaps are Uyghurs uh, and such. Once this testimony or these stories start getting out more, I mean, it's going to be pretty hard to keep this under wraps.
4: Well, I certainly hope so, because I do think that, you know, Canadians want their government to make a stand against uh, the crime of genocide. You know, we've seen it throughout history so often, and there is a, a, a deep responsibility on countries that simply pretend it's not happening until it's over. And I think in the case of the Uyghurs, this is uh, certainly the case. And, you know, I, and just the, the Uyghurs here in Canada who are afraid to speak out Part of it is because our government does not protect them when they're being harassed by agents of the Chinese state. And, you know, agents of the Chinese state who are pressuring people who have family in China to engage in espionage or other, um, other illegal activities is just something that we shouldn't be, uh, tolerating. You know, the people who come from China, once they become Canadians, should be protected the same as everybody else from, from the activities of of a hostile foreign government and shouldn't be subject to blackmail menace and coercion you know it's just wrong
0: uh, obviously we've seen china become more and more interwoven into canadian uh... industry whether it's medicine whether it's health uh... health care rather whether it's education we just hearing of huawei donating more money to canadian universities uh... just last week and such um... As time goes by, I mean, it appears the Prime Minister has just backed himself into a corner here, uh, especially with the two Michaels, because he's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. And, you know, now with this, you know, refusing to call this genocide a genocide, and now the rest of Canada saying, no, it's a genocide, has he backed himself into a corner here?
4: Well, I think that that's true. I mean, how does he get out of it without... uh you know, apparently the government and the civil servants who have been involved don't want to um, admit that their policies have failed and that they made some poor misjudgments. You know, this morning the Immigration Committee of the Commons was uh, was doing hearings into the fact that a, a Chinese company that is subsidiary to the Chinese police, the Public Security Bureau, has been subcontracted to process Canadian visa applications in China. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously there was a screw-up there, big time, and it's time to say, well, we're going to cancel that contract and have the visa applications looked after by Canadians using Canadian facilities. Why don't they simply admit that, you know, that this was wrong and that we need to do something about it right away instead of trying to prevaricate and claim that there's nothing wrong with the Chinese police uh, processing um you know visa information and sensitive personal information for people who want to come to canada you know it just it just seems like a no-brainer to me and i don't understand why why we can't you know say to the government if you do the right thing you know we know that you're acting in the interests of canada the longer you you try and smoke us and and uh you know use uh virtue signaling, as opposed to actually doing anything to try and counter the challenge of of the rise of China to our security and democracy, um, you know, the, the, we feel that you're betraying our our country's purpose, and you know, you shouldn't do that anymore. Like I, like everybody, everybody makes mistakes. The question is, can you correct them?
0: uh is it too late to turn back on a lot of this are they do they have uh, such a a clasp a grasp on canada now it's it's tough to cut that cord it
4: sure is i mean there's so many canadians who are who are um co-opted into collaboration with the purposes of the chinese state that it's hard to turn it back and you know you may remember about a year ago the government started to talk about how they'd be announcing a reset with china in the fall and then Mr. Champagne says, uh, you know, who was our foreign minister at the time, says, well, uh, China's changing so quickly we can't really do a real reset. We'll just, you know, respond as it comes along. Well, I think what happened was that when the reset got to Parliament, I'm sorry, got to the Cabinet, there was sufficient opposition to it that that the government couldn't implement any reset. And so, I mean, that does suggest the gravity of the issue when, when, you know, we can't even... We know what the right thing to do is, and uh, our government seems to be paralyzed into inaction due to entrenched political and economic factors that are not in Canada's interest.
0: So, what happens, uh, assuming that this will go through, and and the and the those MPs will declare this a genocide? How does the Prime Minister respond to that? How? What does he just continue as if it never happened? Does he not a- address it unless he's asked? How does the the Prime Minister move forward with this, especially uh, in, in relations with China?
4: Well, I guess we'll see if um, how many Liberal MPs support the resolution the the um, the opposition is solid behind it, although there may be some NDP members that you know are highly anti-American and will absent themselves from the vote. anyway' well, this will all come out in a few hours. but um, you know, I think it's quite possible that the government will simply say that this was a political move by the opposition, that it requires more study. That we're working on it, you know, and, and we'll keep putting it off just like with the Huawei 5G when we were given a absolute commitment by Ralph Goodale that the government make a decision before the last election. They didn't do that. We're now heading into the next election and, uh, the matter's still, still standing there. And my concern is that if, if the Liberals get a majority in the next election, that they will, uh, you know, issue a report saying Huawei 5G will be just fine for Canada. And go through with it.
0: Are Canadians now questioning why the prime minister is doing what he's doing? I mean, you know, many may agree with his stance that we don't want to upset them, don't want to upset the apple cart, don't want to, don't want to rattle the cage. But now that it, this just seems to be happening over and over and over and over again, and he doesn't seem to share the same. Uh, feelings towards China, the way the rest of Canada does. A- at what point are people going to, or citizens going to, start questioning why he's making the decisions he's making that so positively reflect China, as opposed to the opposite? Uh, the truth coming out, for example, the Uyghurs.
4: Yeah, I think that that's a, you know a very um, good question because the the public opinion polls you know now show Canadians who are supportive of uh, enhanced engagement with China down at 14%. That's one 4 you know, with opposed to 86% who think that it's a bad idea. So basically only 14% of the population supports the government's program. I think that, um, you know, the Common Special Committee on Canada-China Relations, which the government opposed the formation of, but were outvoted because it's a minority parliament, will be doing a study on um, Chinese influence operations in Canada, and this may shed more light on, on uh, you know, following the money, in effect, to see if, if there are people who are in positions of influence who may have a conflict of interest there that, you know, is not really acceptable, whether it's illegal or not is another question, but certainly not publicly acceptable. And that, that could tip the balance in terms of what the government, uh, how the government responds to China in future. Uh, I certainly hope so. I, I think it's been very disappointing that we haven't seen that reset that was promised because, uh, that was timely and all the government's, you know, statements about supporting human rights, uh, in Xinjiang or in Hong Kong or opposing Chinese influence operations, which are clearly just, uh, words designed to appease public opinion. Um, you know, eventually people start to, to get the picture and, and expect to see the government, uh, you know, expecting the government doing something as opposed to talking a good line, and I hope that day will come. But uh, I, I, it's, it 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 mystifies me as to why Canada is also so out of sync with our like-minded uh, allies like Australia and the United States on uh, the question of China.
0: Is it a lack of knowledge of what the situation really is? Or is it just, um, you know, a natural fondness, much like his father had for this country and for China and, and for the possibilities that they could bring?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's the idea, you know, that that China allows Canada to, to move away from too much influence on the United States. And uh, there is the historical fact that, you know, uh, Mr. Trudeau's father, uh, on the one hand, brought in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but on the other hand, was uh, obviously quite fond of people. Like, well, let
0: me let me interrupt you here because I'm just reading this. Trudeau cabinet to abstain from Uyghur vote. Conservatives tabled a motion to condemn China's treatment of them, and Trudeau's cabinet to abstain from the vote. What does that tell you?
4: Oh, they're chicken. You know, I mean that's appalling. They're not going to vote. They're not going to be put on record as opposing it. But on the other hand, they're they're not going to offend the Chinese by supporting it it's uh you know a really an unfortunate uh, turn of events and uh i guess if it's only the cabinet that's abstaining, we'll see a high degree of support most likely among backbenchers but some of those backbenchers who want to get into cabinet may decide that it would be prudent to not be there when the vote is counted or to or to vote the same way uh, or to vote against it as as the cabinet's doing
0: that won't matter will it as uh, obviously the opposition will have the majority in the end correct
4: yeah it's going to get through and as you say even the cabinet's not issuing a vote so it'll be an overwhelming support for the resolution wow this is
0: this is bizarre charles when you think about it that um obviously the prime minister's saying one thing experts saying another now the cabinet's deciding to 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 abstain from voting so we're not getting involved so to speak man it almost reminds of the Republican voters that said, yeah, nothing happened January 6th. It's bizarre to see this happen. They're voting on party lines just because it's their team as opposed to what is right.
4: Yeah, I think, you know, I do think that this should have been a free vote. Um, And it's unfortunate that it's not going to be a free vote because Mr. Trudeau has instructed all of his cabinet ministers to abstain from the vote. And then I guess his line will be, well, the reason we abstained is we don't feel we have enough information to be able to determine genocide and we'll wait till a UN team has gone in there to, you know, dot those I's and cross those T's, as he puts it. I, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a betrayal of, of uh, any kind of morality in terms of the horrors of what's going on uh, with the Uyghurs. And believe me, you know, I, there, there are Uyghurs here in Niagara who really, you know, can't sleep at night worried about their families on which they have no information as to whether they're alive or dead in the camps, being tortured or whatever. They just don't know, they don't know, they don't know. And you know, we should be trying to do something to at least show some support towards those families who are suffering so much because of this awful situation.
0: Charles Burton is with us, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's interests abroad at McDonald Laurier Institute. Charles, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well.
4: Yeah, take care. Thank you, Scott.
0: We all know that the uh, what the airline business is going through in a uh, global pandemic and uh, the whole travel industry uh, obviously on its knees as a result of uh, where we are in the last year. And of course, you'll remember Boeing and the issues it had uh, with its aircraft uh, just recently, the Max 8 and getting it back up in the air well uh now uh united airlines says it's removing 24 boeing 777 aircraft from its fleet out of an abundance of caution following an incident over the skies of denver on the weekend the move comes after a united airlines flight out of denver bound for hawaii forced uh, forced to turn back after takeoff when it suffered a catastrophic engine failure uh, raining pieces of the engine casing on a neighborhood below. Uh, Thank goodness, no injuries, and the 231 passengers and 10 crew on board all landed safely, and no injuries on the ground uh, as well. Let's bring in Keith Mackey, aviation expert, owner and operator of Mackey International, and is with us now. Keith, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. The same to you, Scott. I'm doing fine. So what happened here, Keith? In layman's terms, what uh, what happened with this engine?
1: Well, it would appear that uh, there may have been a failure in the Section, that's the front of the engine. Apparently, they found two of the fan blades, hollow blades, that had uh, come apart.
0: How would that happen?
1: That remains to be seen. There are several things they're going to look at. Had the blades been damaged previously? They've been properly installed? Possible that they hit a bird and the bird caused them to fail? Or is the part defective for some reason after a certain period of time? These are the things that the NTSB will be investigating in order to determine the cause.
0: Um, uh, We obviously have heard that if there's a bird strike, this can cause this sort of thing as well. Is there any reason to believe at this point that it could have been that?
1: Well, there's really uh, not enough evidence yet to go off on any particular path. They will certainly explore the possibility of a bird strike. Uh, Now, the the airplane departed Denver. No doubt it was kind of heavy. It was making a long trip. And uh, they probably used high power on takeoff. They were about 18 miles from the airport when the failure occurred. And they were headed directly for the front range of the Rocky Mountains. And when you depart Denver and you're looking at those mountains right in your face, uh, you don't want to deal with a failed engine. Hmm. So the crew made a mayday call. In fact, they made several of them before anybody responded. And then they got turned around and back on the ground. It looks like the crew did a, did a fine job of uh, handling the emergency.
0: So what would, uh, we certainly saw some uh, harrowing video there. What would it be like for passengers on that side of the plane? What would they have seen?
1: Probably not a great deal. I later heard the the explosion, and you look out the window, and that's what you, you would see, actually. It's a little bit interesting because the engine didn't freeze. It was still rotating, although slowly, probably by the airstream coming through it, windmilling it. And if you look carefully, it looks like the, uh, The first part of the engine that you see that's rotating, that's the fan, it appears to be out of balance. And if you do a Mm. freeze frame, it looks like one of the uh, fan blades may be missing or at least damaged. So I think that there'll be a great deal of uh, interest focused there.
0: So what would happen, uh, you know, again, bird strikes do happen. Uh, Planes have more than one engine. What happens in the cockpit when something like this goes wrong? How does this affect the handling of the plane?
1: Well, the airplane will handle fine. It'll fly till it runs out of fuel. It it wasn't affected in any way other than uh, in a uh, twin-engine airplane. The rules say that you will land at a suitable airport if you fail an engine.
0: And how hard is it to bring a plane down and stop it in that condition?
1: It isn't any different than doing it with two engines operating, really. It's the same thing. You have a little less power. Uh... And you might want to be aware of that, not get yourself in a position where you need a great deal of power. In other words, don't get the airplane low on approach. Keep it at the normal approach, or if it's visual, maybe even a slight bit higher. And there's really no issue.
0: How often does something like this happen? Um, um, I guess what's concerning here is some major pieces of this landed in a residential area.
1: Well, it looks to me like what probably happened is uh, when the uh, engine started to come apart, it was out of balance, and uh, the the movement of the engine shook those parts off. They're mostly cowling pieces, and they call the bull ring the uh, inlet ring that's uh, a rather mm-hmm. heavy piece. That's where the de-icing protection for the engine is located, and it's also protection for any object damage that might occur. And, of course, we have plenty of pictures of that landing in the man's house there in in Colorado.
0: Um, How major an issue is this for Boeing, considering what's happened with the MAX 8 and such?
1: Well, it really isn't a Boeing problem. Here's the way things work. Boeing will produce an airplane like the 777, and they'll offer various options on it. Now, if you're running an airline, several other similar-sized airplanes, and you're using a particular engine, you'll want to use that same type of engine on the new airplane you've ordered because you don't want to carry extra parts or extra tools or have extra training for the people that maintain them. So consequently, the 777, this particular one, had a Pratt & Whitney 4000 series engine on it, but General Electric also makes engines for it as does Rolls-Royce. So different airlines will Mm -hmm. have different engines. And really... As far as the grounding is concerned, it only affects the uh, the airplanes with the 4,000-series uh, engines that this one had. And I think right now there are 69 of them flying in the world, and there's 59 of them that are parked on the ground. Hmm. So uh, each of those will have to go through whatever the FAA determines. BSB actually was the cause to correct it that they'll be safe in the future the other triple sevens with different type engines are totally unaffected
0: how old was this plane is that a factor in any of this do we know
1: i think it was uh 26 years old if, uh, if i'm correct on that that's the number that i heard it's a fairly early series one it's a 200 series and uh, the age of the plane didn't have anything to do with it uh it looks like the failure was totally uh, contained within the engine. So I don't think Boeing is uh, much on the hook for this. And I'm sure they're happy about that.
0: Yeah, considering what they've been through. Um, so uh, when do you figure we will find out more about this and the eventual cause of this?
1: You may not. <laughs> mm-hmm. What will happen is the, uh, they'll complete the investigation and they'll, when they find the problem, they'll come up with a solution, and the the FAA will issue an airworthiness directive, the FAA because the airport is certified in the United States, and that directive will specify what has to be done to return the engine to an airworthy condition. And once that's completed and signed off, we're back to uh, uh, business with them. Hopefully, that's the correct solution, so... We, we may never actually hear what the final solution was. It may be a very technical solution. They may have to change all the blades for some reason to a different design, or perhaps they'll make a modification to the blade that will prevent this from happening. Or it may not be the blade at all. It may be something else that uh, that caused the issue. But the uh, the NTSB and the FAA, and the ma- engine maker, will find out what had failed.
0: Uh, obviously, the airline industry has been on hold for the last year as, uh, you know, as they try to get through this, this uh, global pandemic and such. Would that have anything to do with this, uh, the fact that planes are sitting in the ground for so long and then back into the air or this, that, or the other? I mean, I'm sure the maintenance schedules are, are, uh, are uh, pretty rigorous, but it, does that change anything? Is there anything that concerns you there?
1: Well, yes, actually. Uh, we don't know what the history of this airplane was. Was it parked somewhere? Was it grounded? Had recent maintenance been done? Had something been done to the engine that could uh, possibly contribute to what happened? And that'll all be part of the investigation. That's the easy part. I'm sure they've looked all that information over now. They'll interview the people that worked on the engine. They'll do a very thorough job. They're pretty good at what they do.
0: Keith Mackey has been with us, aviation expert, owner, and operator of Mackey International, United Airlines, grounding 24 aircraft after an engine failure uh, over Denver. Keith, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. You too. <laughs>